I find in politics, people are often very quick to talk about the what rather than the why. And fundamentally, the why is incredibly important. Politicians are hugely motivated when they hear the stories of individual people and how things have impacted them. And so I guess if you're trying to build a consensus, the starting point has to be the why. You know, why is this issue important? Why are we motivated to change it? Where are those sort of heartbreaking human stories? And where are the families who have been affected by a particular thing that's happened? And to try and make the case that people should do something. And once you want people to buy into the fact that actually there's some kind of horrible injustice or this really does matter, once you've established that case, I think people are then far more likely to say, okay, well, we need to work together to solve this. What can we do? And then you can move very quickly onto the what. Hi there, and welcome to the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader that you can possibly be. It's my gift to you, and it's completely free. In today's episode, I'm joined by Daisy Cooper, MP. Daisy was elected as the MP for St Albans in 2019, unseating the previous Tory MP of nine years and becoming the first Liberal to hold the seat since 1904. Having previously been the digital culture, media and sport spokesperson and then education spokesperson for the party, she is now its health and social care spokesperson and the party's deputy leader. Daisy is a passionate internationalist and before she was elected worked in Commonwealth Affairs for 10 years, campaigning for LGBT plus rights abroad and for greater transparency around how taxpayers' money is used to help some of the world's poorest. She continues to campaign for the preservation and promotion of Britain's place in Europe and indeed the world. In this episode of the show, We generally stayed clear of party politics, but we did explore what it was that drove and led her to a career in politics and how she operates as a leader in this setting. We spoke about building consensus, influencing skills, and how to lead effectively when you don't have direct authority over others. And as is so often the case on this show, We touched on the ever-relevant topics of maintaining our energy, staying resilient and priority management as leaders. But before we get into this episode, I've got an exciting competition for you. In the show notes, you'll find a competition link that you can click on to win a full set of four books from the authors that I've interviewed for this season of the show. The competition closes soon, folks, so do take a moment right now to hit pause, scroll to that link, click on it and enter the competition. But now, though, sit back, relax and let's dive right in. Here's my interview with Daisy Cooper, MP. Daisy, a very warm welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us today. First of all, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, the sun is shining as we record this, so it makes everything seem a little bit better in the world, right? Certainly does, yeah. Can I start off by just asking you to share a little bit about your personal journey and what led you to pursue a career in politics? Yeah, sure. So I think from a very young age, uh, I've always been a campaigner and campaigning has been in my blood. So, you know, I was that little girl who was 
um, you know, collecting conkers and planting trees and trying to sell them to people. You know, I was uh, going on marches with my mum at the age of six. I was the one who would always stage a protest against a new school uniform. You know, that was kind of me from a very young age. So I've had the kind of campaigning in my blood, I think, from the get go. Um, But uh, party politics just didn't cross my mind at all uh, as I was growing up. Certainly didn't even cross my mind at university. Um, And I just had a light bulb moment on a Sunday morning. Um, I think like many people, I was watching the Sunday morning uh, political shows. And at the time, it happened to be a Labour government. And um, it was shortly after... um, uh, well, it was about 2008 when I joined the Lib Dems. So at the time, the government was uh, the Labour government was trying to wage their war on homegrown terrorism, and as part of that, they were sort of announcing things like 42 days uh, detention without charge. And you know, I studied law at university. I've got a very strong sense of um, the importance of everyone's sort of individual uh, ability to direct their own lives and, and live their lives as they choose. And some of these measures just sounded so deeply illiberal and against everything, all, all my kind of you know convictions and everything I sort of believe in my bones. Um, and I watched this on TV and I had sort of two realisations, really. The first was, you know, if you've got ministers of state saying stuff, they were talking about sort of um, how they were going to sort of target radicalised communities. And, and it just, it sounded like there was quite a lot of stereotyping going on, quite frankly. And so two things occurred to me. The first was, well, if you've got ministers of state using the, this kind of language where they're going to sort of stigmatise entire communities, where on earth do we end up as a country? Um, and the second one, looking at this minister, I just thought, well, I think I could do a better job than her. Uh, so um, I sat down and I thought, well, I've always voted Lib Dem, but I, I don't know if I really am a Lib Dem. I should probably find out. So I sort of sat down and uh, Googled uh, the Conservative Party and got a bit of fright and uh, thought, oh, no, I'm definitely not a Conservative. And I sort of Googled Labour and thought, mm, no, I'm you know not really into labor at all and uh and then read about the liberal democrats and what they believed in and i just thought gosh this is this is what i believe in this is this is where i belong so i joined up that afternoon signed up signed up um and then from there on in um i became an approved parliamentary candidate i stood for election a few times wound up in st albans uh in 2016 uh, and then got elected in 2019 so that's the short version So I'd love to take you back to um, being a bit of a campaigner at at school. So what what was school like for you then? Was was that a um, like positive experience or were you seen as like maybe a bit of the troublemaker at school? Like how did what did that look like? I'm curious. No, I don't think I've ever seen as I was never seen as a troublemaker. But if students were unhappy, I'd be the one that would go and tell the teacher, you know, know, we don't want this to happen or that's not fair or that kind of thing. So I was probably more um uh I guess you know I'd sort of hear what other students were saying and hear the grumbles and then I sort of go and just you know I guess I just turn up at the head teacher's door and knock on the door and say we don't want this to happen or this isn't fair or we can't afford the new new school jumper or whatever it might be so um I don't think I ever really got in trouble particularly um but I think it was more a case of um uh just being a bit more outspoken yeah and did you did you feel comfortable being like that at school and the reason I ask is I have a really vivid memory from when I was at secondary school I think I was in uh year seven or eight and I was I was the school well the rugby captain for my my year group we weren't a very good team but I had aspirations of us being a great team and the year above we're getting extra coaching at lunchtime and to your point I thought this was deeply unfair that, that we weren't and I remember marching off to the PE teacher's office and saying, it was, it was called Mr. Hillier, a Welsh guy, said, Mr. Hillier, sir, this isn't fair. Why aren't we getting it? But I also remember 
almost like trembling within, like really summoning up the courage to to go and speak up. But it didn't come didn't come naturally. Or I didn't feel inwardly confident doing it. So what, what was that like for you as a, as a kid at school? Uh, honestly, I never had that problem. <laughs> <laughs> just me then. No, it's not just you. Obviously, lots of people. I think we're probably most people would probably have the same experience as you, to be honest. Um, I think you know, I was brought up by a real feminist mother. Um, and uh, it was really funny. I remember the two things I remember my parents saying to me when I was growing up. My dad would always say, never spend more money than you've got. Um, and really instilled this idea that you had to save your money if you wanted to buy a toy or something, you know. So he was always very much on the financial side. And my mum used to always say, you should always challenge them, always ask why, always challenge your teachers if you don't understand or you think they're doing the wrong thing. And she was a teacher herself. So I think I kind of, um, I think I was brought up thinking that it was a completely legitimate thing to do and it was always my right to ask questions. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I think the whole the sort of the imposter syndrome that many people have, I think probably set, set in a little bit later in life, but I've certainly seen that, you know, particularly women, uh, often more so than men, have grown up with that sense of feeling like they haven't got the right to ask or don't know how to ask something or they have to be polite about it. Um, and I've realised as I've got older that my upbringing was quite unusual in that respect and that I was encouraged to always um, challenge people and ask difficult questions. Yeah, which no doubt serves you brilliantly well as a politician now, right? Yeah, I'd say so. And what does leadership mean to you, Daisy? It's a word we use a lot, right? Kind of, but there's a million and one definitions of it. What does it mean to you in in your world? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, this, because it's not one that I've really thought about a lot. Um, But one of the curious things about being an MP is that you don't have any budgets. So it's not like running a council or a business where you can just decide that you're going to spend money on something. Um, You also don't really have any levers. You're not in charge of any organisations or departments unless, of course, you're a minister. Um, And so you can't compel anybody to do anything either by just making a decision. So everything you do as a member of parliament, you do through uh, influence, not authority. Um, And so a huge amount of the leadership that uh, if you want to show leadership on anything at all, it's basically done through influence and persuasion uh, and through either bridge building or by making an impression on somebody or inspiring people to action somehow. Um, and that's really how we get most of our things done. Um, there's a little bit of a joke amongst MPs that we only have one superpower and our superpower is our letterhead of paper. Um, and it's a very curious thing where, you know, you can have a, a constituent, for example, who's having a really difficult time, maybe with a social housing provider um, or maybe with a bank or uh, with a water company or you know, um, uh, even a healthcare provider, whatever it might be. Um, and they've been trying for weeks or months to um, get answers out of somebody. Um, and as a member of parliament, you have no authority to compel anybody to respond to you, but you are there as their elected representative and you have a platform. So the question really is, is as a leader, how do you use your platform? Um, and I always think, um, I, I always talk about having a, a pincer movement strategy. You always want to start by asking nicely, uh, but with them knowing full well that if they don't sort of respond uh, either promptly or in a way that is satisfactory, that they're in no doubt at all that you will then use your platform. To, to call them out uh, effectively um and um so yeah i guess you know, that's that's one part of it the other curious thing about um sort of a leadership position in politics is that you're having to show leadership to lots of different groups in different ways so of course i have my parliamentary office so i'm leading a team of people uh, staff who are responding to constituents on my behalf and i have to show some sort of leadership in terms of how i want them to 
um, and the tone in which they respond, uh, give them permission to often um, uh, close cases with particularly difficult uh, people sometimes. Um, and I always say I'm, I'm you know, often I'll ask to you know, sign off particularly difficult cases in order protect, to protect them. So there's a kind of leadership role in the world that your staff are protected when constituents are wanting to either get to you or to, ha- to have a go at you or something like that. So that you've got your staff. But then also, we're also campaigners. We're campaigning in our community all the time. So you're leading a you're leading uh, your leadership figure amongst volunteers, and uh, volunteers give their time freely. So they're not there that you know you can't compel them to turn up or to do anything, and they sort of buy into what you're trying to achieve. So that's something else. Uh, and then of course you have other leadership roles uh, within our political party and amongst colleagues as well. So it's sort of lots of different sort of leadership hats that we wear as politicians, depending on whether we're talking to volunteers in our area, whether it's our staff or whether it's our parliamentary colleagues. Yeah, I'm curious to know a little bit more about how you balance that, actually. One of the fairly widely used definitions of leadership that you certainly hear in the in the business world, which on the one hand, I agree with. On the other hand, I don't. Cause it's a slight simplification, but it generally goes along the lines of um, leaders work on the business and managers work in in the business with the premise being as a leader you are sort of growing the business taking it forward and a a manager you're in there sort of executing the strategy and trying to bring the vision to life now part of my challenge with that is I fundamentally believe as a leader we need to do some management and as a manager hopefully you'd be doing some some leadership so they're they're sort of more modes for me that we step into as required rather than different people doing doing different jobs but is there an equivalent of that sort of leaders work on the business, managers work in the business in in your world in so much as, I guess, how much of your time is spent sort of working at the party level versus how much is in the constituency? And how, how do you how do you go about balancing balancing that? Because it seems like it's probably more complex in, in your world than the slightly more cut and dry of, of business. Again, another curious thing about being a member of parliament is there's no handbook for doing it. And actually, every MP does their job very differently. So some MPs choose to focus sort of exclusively on sort of constituency casework. And so what they'll be doing is receiving complaints from people about maybe, you know, housing or bins or, um, you know, welfare issues. And they just spend a lot of their time doing that because they enjoy it and maybe because there's a very high caseload. Um, other MPs leave that to their staff entirely and don't get involved in any of it. Um, and they'll see their role as they'll be they'll will have been motivated to join politics because of a particular cause. So maybe they join because you know one of their children had a particular issue and they've come into politics to change that one thing. And so they've put a lot of their time into that one thing um, and do less of the kind of constituency side. Um, other people are often born of the party and therefore love the internal party politics. So people who've maybe worked their way up starting as interns and working for MPs and things, they often end up you know, working within the, within the mechanics of a political party rather than being more public facing. So there's lots of different ways in which MPs can do the job. And so any answer I give you would be, you know, you ask 650 MPs, you probably get 700 different answers, right? right. Yeah. About how it works. Um, I would say the split isn't between constituency and parliament, because actually most of the things I raise in parliament, in fact, almost all of them exclusively, are issues that are happening in my constituency. So that's an artificial divide. What I would say is that there is there is a little bit of both. Um, I often say that being an MP is like standing in a room with 70,000 people and everybody shouting at you. And you have to discern what are the most important issues to these people, uh, to the people that I'm here to represent. 
And one of the most important things I need to spend my time working on. And so out of all of the sort of the noise, as it were, uh, and all of the issues that people, that things, all the issues that matter to people, you have to just be able to pick out two or three issues that you're just going to run with. Um, and you know, part of that is working out what you consider to be the most important thing to your constituents, but also working out where are the areas of the issues where you can actually make the most progress. So if an issue is a particularly lost cause, it could be important to your constituents. But if you know you can't push it any further, there's not much time spending, you know, not much point spending lots of time on it. But if you think there's an opening because there's a piece of legislation or you can change the law or you think that, you know, there's a particularly embarrassing story that might you know, persuade the government to act or force them into a corner. It's about making that kind of judgment and saying, right, I've decided I'm going to go for this issue. And I'm going to go for it now. And so there is that kind of vision and leadership bit of it. But of course, on the I guess what you're sort of the, the management bits you're referring to, we have to do day to day all the time as MPs um, in terms of saying, well, if, if this is a campaign I want to run, how am I going to do it? What are the mechanics of that? So actually, how am I going to table the questions? When am I going to send the letters? How you know which journalists might be interested in this? Um, and because often it's about personal relationships, you can't get away. You can't just say to your staff, "Well, can you go and call a journalist?" You know, you've got to use your personal relationship with them. So, um, uh, so yeah, it's a little bit of both, I would say. So how do you do that prioritisation piece? Like to, to use that analogy, there, it being like having 70,000 people all, all screaming and shouting at you saying, my issue is re- really important. How, how do you decide what to focus on? Because again, many of the people I work with in the world of, of business, be it seen, really senior leaders or people at a more, more junior level, they might have like 30 things on their to-do list or 30 projects to, to prioritise. And we'll, we'll often struggle with that. Like, how do you do it on such a scale? How do you get to the point of knowing what it is you're going to really sort of stand up in Parliament and and champion and try and drive drive changing when there are so many things that you you could do? And because of the nature of it being people's lives and politics, there's always going to be a big group of people who are going to be unhappy if you're not driving driving their issue, right? Because it's mostly it's a lot of it is deeply emotive. So how do you? How do you choose? So um, I guess there's a kind of the, the the starting principles, right? So I always say my starting principles are health first, family second, and politics third. And that means that if I've got to choose between, you know, a doctor's appointment, seeing a family member, or doing my day job, that's the order in which I make that decision, right? So I kind of set those principles down, and I say to my staff, it should be exactly the same for them. So health first, family second, uh, and politics third. Um, because if you're not well and if you're not looking after your family, then really, you know, everything's going wrong, right? So that starts with, that's my kind of macro uh, starting point. Then I guess on a, I'm just incredibly structured and quite disciplined. So every sort of three or four months, I sit down with my chief of staff and we say, right, what are the priorities for the next four months? Um, and we work out the top three or four things that are absolutely critical in terms of things I need to get done over that three or month period. And then we structure the diary around it. So I say, right, okay, and I have a sort of a two-week rolling diary. So I have a week A and a week B, because uh, not everything needs to be done every single week. And uh, and then we put these slots of time in, and almost every time slot uh, is accounted for. So, um, you know, you say, right, these are the three things we need to achieve. Well, in order to achieve that, and you spend this much time on it every week or this much time every fortnight. And I give very, very clear instructions about what my priorities are. So if we have to choose between two things, and as MPs, you know, we have to choose between about 20 things at any point in time because there's so much going on in Parliament. Um, my team have a very clear idea about what my priorities are. And if two things conflict, they'll then come and ask me. But I sort of empower myself to make those decisions because I communicate very clearly about, right, in the next three or four months, I want to achieve these things. These things have to get done. And therefore, 
the priority in terms of the diary uh, uh, is this. And uh, actually, as MPs, the thing that we really never, ever have enough of is time. Uh, and so sort of the, the use of time in the diary is one of the most sort of political things we have to do to decide how we're going to spend our time. Hey, quick one for you. I want to make sure that you know about my 10 for 10 leadership program. It's an online program that's totally free. It's bite-sized and it covers some of the most common leadership topics and challenges that I frequently get asked about. It's also a course that gets consistently great feedback. You can find out more by heading to the online courses page of my website at ben-morton.com. I love that. I do something very similar, actually. For me, it comes from from my time in, in the military. So in the army, there was always the concept on any mission of there being um, one main effort. So you'd have your mission, but there was always a main effort, which was the critical task that if we succeeded at that, it unlocked everything. So I carried that on. So every 90 days, I build out a plan. I have three main efforts for the coming 90 days it works really well doesn't it in terms of helping you focus and being clear on the the absolute priorities and making those trade-offs we inevitably have to have to make yeah and I think as well um one of the things that I think a lot of MPs have to learn very quickly is how to say no you know we get hundreds of invitations every single day to lots and lots of different things and every constituent wants you to come to their event and you just have to prioritize you know ruthlessly um, and, and get you to saying saying no to things as well so that you can stay focused and achieve something it would be very very easy I think to be an MP who works 20 hours a day but never actually achieving anything because you're just busy doing stuff without actually a sort of focus on an end goal but um, yeah that's how I try and structure it yeah it makes me even more grateful for your time today Daisy <laughs> um, <laughs> one thing I'd love to ask actually that um, I hadn't mentioned to you in, in advance and this is something I, I often think a lot about especially when when watching the news and I asked a similar question to a former US senator so I think quite rightly we hold our um, MPs to to very high high standards right Um, and I think at the same time we sometimes judge them as leaders to the same standards we would judge a a business leader but the context is very different, right? In so much as a leader in business doesn't have to stand up every three to five years and ask for all those in their company to to vote for them. Do they still want to be the be the leader of the business? Like leaders in business don't constantly have the media interviewing them, trying to catch them out and get a soundbite that they can later in two years' time to use to prove that they contradicted themselves and. I don't know, part of my fear and worry is is that if we hound our MPs too much, and bear in mind, people like yourself are absolutely doing a job out of service because you have some beliefs and you want to make things different. But I have this fear that if we are too too harsh on, on them, then nobody will want to be a member of parliament and, and represent people. With, and then where, then where would we be? So like, what's like, do, do you have a, I know it's not a particularly well-formed question, but I'm just curious to know sort of your your take on that as someone who's kind of working in Parliament. Yeah, I think if you put yourself forward for um, public office, then you have to expect there's going to be a much higher level of scrutiny. Um, what I would say on a personal level is I always try and play the ball, not the person. 
Um, and I think every constituent and every voter, everyone in the country is completely entitled to ask the people they've elected what they believe in, what policies they're going to pursue, what their priorities are, what they think about political issues. Um, I, you know, I, I try to never attack people, you know, for the way they look or the way they sound or any of those kind of things. Um, the one exception I would make, I have to say, would be Boris Johnson on account of the fact that his character goes to the heart of everything that he's, you know, his, the decisions that he's made and the way that he's behaved as a politician. So obviously there's a very clear exception there. But apart from that, I think people um, are absolutely justified in wanting answers from their politicians. But there is a big distinction between holding politicians to account for their beliefs and their votes and their actions. There's a big distinction between that and just hounding them because of their their gender, their their race, their colour, their, you know, um, their sexual orientation and all the rest of it. Um, I think that um, we know for a fact that there are lots of people who are just put off going into politics because of um, because of, the sort of I think not just the level of scrutiny, but the level of, sort of online harassment and in-person harassment as well. Um, and that's where you make the distinction. You abs- everybody absolutely should be able to um, ask their politicians what they think and ask them why they voted a particular way. Uh, and that's completely fine. But I think when it starts to get um, personal and bullying and, you know, and even worse, uh, that's where you obviously have to draw the line. Is the level of interest kind of changing in terms of party membership and people who want to play an active role in, in politics, i.e. Stand, stand to be kind of members of parliament and represent their constituencies? Are people still coming forward or is it are people being put off? What does that look like at the minute? Oh, I mean, there's always people who want to become politicians uh, all the time. There's no shortage of people who want to get into politics. I think all political parties would probably say that. Um, I think a lot of people are quite shocked uh, in terms of what the job is um, when they sort of get selected as a candidate or try and become a candidate. I think there are some people, I guess maybe might be relevant for your sort of normal audience, but there are some people who've worked in business who take the view that, well, if you, you know, if you were running a business like the way you're running the government, you know, it would keel over tomorrow. I mean, there aren't, you, you can't draw those similarities. You just can't, right? Um, because uh, people have very ingrained interests um, and, uh, you know, they're, it's just a completely different model. So I think some people come in thinking they can just make very sensible evidence-based decisions and then they suddenly realise that there's some people who absolutely hate those what they consider to be a sensible evidence-based decision and you have to understand why that is and try and balance those concerns. So there's a, there is a real challenge between, I think, what people see as sensible policy-making and representation. Uh, and there are you know, there are challenges there and that is the art of politics. That's what politics is, is there to do, right? It's to try and get the balance between between both. So that's a lovely lead in, actually. So how do you practically sort of approach building consensus and fostering collaboration among colleagues, constituents who have got really diverse opinions? Are there any particular approaches, tactics that that you use? Um, I guess probably to say what everybody else would say, which is that um, I guess the first thing is to actually set out why something matters to you. Um, I think what's always interesting is people... I find in politics, people are often very quick to talk about the what rather than the why. Um, And fundamentally, the why is incredibly important. Um, Politicians are hugely motivated when they hear the stories of individual people and how things have impacted them. Um, And so I guess if you're trying to build a consensus, 
the starting point has to be the why. You know, why is this issue important? Why are we motivated to change it? Where are those sort of heartbreaking human stories? And where are the families who have been affected by a particular thing that's happened? And to try and make the case that people should do something. And once you want people to buy into the fact that actually there's some kind of horrible injustice or this really does matter, once you've established that case, I think people are then far more likely to say, okay, well, we need to work together to solve this. What can we do? And then you can move very quickly onto the what. Um, but I'm always surprised still by the sort of number of MPs and, and people outside of politics who say, um, oh, I'm organising a debate on this issue and can you sign up to it? And you're like, well, wh- why would I do that? Why, why would I do that? Why would I prioritise this? I don't know what this is about. You know, so you just sort of dismiss it and, and pass it on. And actually, uh, it is those kind of, you know, it's why I particularly enjoy doing surgeries and knocking on doors and speaking to people because it is those human stories that really convey to you why something particularly matters. And I can probably... You know, uh, I won't obviously name any of them, but there are sort of probably about 10 constituents who have come to me with such sort of appalling, appalling cases that I've sort of taken it on as a, a really deep personal mission to sort out a problem or a particular policy on their behalf, because I've just seen how awful something has been for them. And I've just said, right, I'm not going to I'm not going to let this lie. You know, I'm, I'm going to just keep going at this until we've got it sorted. And this links back to what you said earlier about your own priorities. I think you said health family po- politics it's a topic that crops up a lot which I guess the label would put on it is is resilience really but when you are doing that sort of work and hearing some of those stories that are deeply personal or shocking or or a deep deep injustice I guess that can be a, a bit of a burden for for you to carry so in the in the light of dealing with some of those things and your incredibly busy schedule like what does looking after daisy look like how do you how do you go about doing that how do you switch off how do you make sure things don't get on on top of you because you come across as a really positive upbeat energetic person like how do you how do you stay that way i mean i never consider um those stories ever to be a burden because i have the privilege of being an mp i can do something about it so i actually find them enormously motivating I often find them very upsetting, um, but I never consider them a burden. I just, it, it, I, they really do kind of fire me up, you know, and you get that kind of burning sense of injustice in your belly that makes you say, right, okay, guys, we're going to focus on this and this is why, you know. Um, uh, so I guess that's the first thing. Um, I guess for me, um, I am a, I'm a very positive person. I'm very optimistic. Um, I often have to look very grumpy when I'm on the telly because there's lots of things <laughs> to be about in the world. But most of the time, I'm a fairly sort of chirpy person. Uh, for me, resilience, um, I think one of the things as a leader, actually, is to be incredibly self-aware of when you are low on resilience and to do something about it before it all goes horribly wrong. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I'm quite shocked at, particularly in politics, is when there are allegations of bullying, whether that's, you know, by MPs or by, you know, other people in politics and often the excuse is well you know it was a very stressful time um and I just think that's unacceptable all of us in leadership roles have to have that kind of self-awareness it, you know politics is very very stressful things are changing all the time you know I'm t- normally I'm intrinsically a real kind of planner I like to, to plan ahead but in politics things come at you you know left right and center every single day that you're not expecting and therefore, for me, resilience is really about making sure you get enough rest and, and eating properly and putting time aside to process things. And again, recognising when you're not in the best position to do something. So, you know, you might have a media interview that's scheduled um, or someone says, oh, can you come do this thing in 20 minutes? And if you're feeling very low on resilience because you've had a tough day or because you've had some kind of a knockback or you wanted to 
push an issue forward, but you weren't selected in the debate. So you've actually this case that you've been working on for ages, you just you just can't move it forward. And you're just very frustrated, whatever the thing might be. It's having that self-awareness to say, actually, I'm I'm not in the right mindset to do this. It's not good for me. It's not good for the party. I, I'm going to say no to this one. And this is why. And having that sort of real self-awareness to recognise those um recognize recognize the sort of ticks you know you recognize in yourself when you're sort of low on resilience and and being you know being able to to make that clear and to explain to others around you as well and to, in, to almost empower them to say to you as well you know empower your staff to say to you are you really sure you should do this you know you know you can pass don't you and you can say actually that's a really good idea so um, I think it I think it comes down to yeah being self-aware of when you when you feel resilient and when you don't feel resilient and making sure that you are almost ha- you know you, you have an intervention on yourself to to stop you know doing those things that's then going to end up going the wrong way is there any sort of process you use to do that because of course the challenge is that when things are going swimmingly well and we're not feeling particularly pressured it's easier to pause and step back and, and, and notice, right? But as the momentum starts to, to build, as the pressure starts to build, as our diary might start getting a little bit more back to back, as we start to think, oh, I'll just skip that run this evening just so I can finish working on this particular case, it, it can easily easily snowball. So do you have a process to help check in? Is it, for instance, like journaling sitting down with uh, with a partner to review your day and and how are you is is there any structure around it or is it literally just you are a very self-aware individual now and you you know the signs to pay attention to and you're used to spotting them and acting on them I mean I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert on this right because we all still get things wrong I think for me personally I would say that I'm a real gut instinct kind of person and most of the time I have a very strong gut instinct about whether I want to do something or I don't want to do it or whether it's a good idea to do something or not to do something so I I make very quick decisions most of the time all day long for me the tell is that if I if I don't have a strong instinct or I can't work out whether or not I should do something or I don't know how to do it it's normally because I'm you know uh, either t- too tired to be doing it too tired to making that decision um you know maybe need to get some food uh, so you know, low on blood sugar or I'm just sort of too exhausted or I'm distracted by something else and so for me that's the tell right if I don't have that strong instinct as to whether or not I should do something and I can't work out how important it is that I do it um that's when I have to the way I then deal with it is to go to the sort of two or three people who are my trusted advisors um and you know in different sort of walks of my political career I'll turn to a particular person and just say look have you got five minutes I just need to say should I be doing this or not? I just can't work it out anymore. How important is this? And someone will say, oh, no, it's not important at all in the grand scheme of things. And you're like, oh, okay, are you sure? Oh, yeah, because of this, this, this. And you say, oh, right, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Okay, can you say no to it then, please? You know, or alternatively, I'll say, actually, Daisy, this is one of these things you've got to do. You're just going to have to dig deep. So tell you what, let me move this other meeting or, or tell you what, you go and have a cup of tea, go for a walk around the block, come back, you can do it. And then when it's over, you know, we'll go into something else. So it, actually, I think, you know, for me, um, most of the time, I'd say 95% of the time, I can just make those quick decisions all the time. But when I when I can't make a quick decision, it's normally because I'm a bit low on resilience for one reason or another. Yeah, love it. Sounds like you've got a great team around you as well to, to help from what you said there. Yeah, amazing. Um, Daisy, I am conscious of time. So let me um, move us on and just ask the my two regular quick fire questions to to wrap things up. Number one, what would you say is the one book that has had the most significant impact upon you, 
or to answer the, ask the question in another way, what is the one book that you frequently find yourself recommending to other people? Ah, interesting. Um, so do you know what? It was, it's a book called The Life and Times of Michael Kay. It's a fiction book. I don't really go in for management business kind of books, I'm afraid. It's not, not my bag. Um, but it's a, it's a book called The Life and Times of Michael Kay. And um, I haven't read it for years, actually. I should probably go back and read it again. But um, it's effectively about um, a, a young man in South Africa during apartheid years. And fundamentally, it's about how there can be these really, really big societal things going on um, in a society. We're playing out with really big politics and ideology and, and all the rest of it. And some people who are really struggling just don't really know what's going on and no one sort of looks after them and you can sort of, you sort of it, it's the story of someone sort of muddling through life against this enormous dramatic political backdrop um and it was a kind of eye-opener for me that, and a real reminder you know as we often have to have in politics that even when you think there are big things going on most folk are just struggling to get on day to day with their own lives and struggling against the system trying to work out you know what the next step is for them and their family um, and there's sort of other sort of similar books I've read in that vein, but it's a very um, powerful story um, about this man, and um, uh, and it's always sort of uh, stayed with me. I would say so. Yeah, that, that's the one I would probably pick out. And other than your smartphone, what would you say is the one item that you would immediately go out and replace if it were to be lost, stolen, or broken? Um, that's incredibly hard to answer because basically my life is my smartphone. <laughs> There's almost nothing outside of it. And people do comment on the fact that I am glued to it. Um, I actually, I, I saw that question earlier and I said to my husband, I said, what, what would it be? You know, have you got any ideas? And he said, no, maybe your laptop. <laughs> so it shows you how glued I am to, uh, to my inbox. Um, Daisy, thank you so much for for your time and, and energy today. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. It's a really different take to normally have on the podcast, but everything that you've shared is is super relevant to, to my audience. So thank you so much, and um, keep up the good work. And thank you for being of, of service to your community. Thank you very much. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode and what particular bits resonated with you. So do please connect with me on LinkedIn to let me know what you think. Or of course, you can just click on the feedback link in the show notes. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and I'm fairly easy to find. I'm on there as Ben Morton Leadership. And do remember to go to the show notes, folks, and check out that competition to win all of the books from this season of the show. And finally, before you go, can I ask you to do just one thing for me that will take no more than three minutes, five at the very most. Please can you rate and review the show wherever you happen to be listening. It really does make a huge difference. And without those reviews, we won't be able to keep the show going. And with those reviews, we are able to keep attracting more and more high profile guests for you to listen to and learn from and if you've got time after all of that for one more thing do please share the link to the show with your friends colleagues via your social media channels and let's start improving the leadership capability around the world together that's it for this episode though folks look after yourself look after those you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead and until next time lead on Mm -hmm.